0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. <music> Photographer Armando Gennaro wants to show Denver beyond its stereotypes.
1: It's all like street art and uh, yoga and all these you know, craft breweries, but it's so much more than that. People sleep on, on the great Mexican food that's available out here. I had no idea that that like was here 17 years ago before I came here.
0: Gennaro's photography celebrates his adopted home and sends a message of how the city's changing, too. And what happens after the city of Denver sweeps away encampments of people experiencing homelessness? Plus, new ideas are moving forward to give other options than pitching a tent along a city sidewalk. Then, teachers evaluate if they're making the grade after a year of pandemic challenges. We'll look at the evolution of education and how the history of medicine informs the present and the future.
2: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado.
0: Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Armando Gennaro started taking photos with his phone around the time he moved to Denver. He'd just gotten out of the Air Force, and he knew he needed a creative outlet. He says he got that from his dad, who was a jeweler. Eleven years later, Gennaro's got a camera and a message.
1: When History Colorado approached me for this exhibit, they were um, already planning a main exhibit celebrating the architecture here in Denver. And they wanted me to have like a little exhibit to go with it that connected the architecture with the human side of Denver, that not only pays homage to the architecture, but the people who build it, the people who make it home, the people who give life to lifeless buildings.
0: That's Gennaro. We met in Coffee at the Point, a cafe in Five Points. He's taken a lot of photos in this neighborhood. Some of those are in his biggest solo show to date, Brick and Soul opens soon at the History Colorado Center. Genero ordered a gelato and sat down to show me a printout of the photos that'll be in the exhibit.
1: With this one, with, with the kids uh, protesting, you know, uh, uh, stricter, for stricter gun laws.
0: Teens in this photo from 2018 had walked out of school in protest. They're at the Capitol building holding up signs with slogans like, Protect Kids, Not Guns.
1: This happened like right after uh, Stoneman Douglas in Florida. To me, this photo stands out a lot because it's our young ladies that are out there kind of taking charge on the front lines, demanding that things change. And it's a lot of our women of color that are out there, you know, demanding change. Those type of moments are, like, super powerful, I think, and impactful, and yeah.
0: Janeiro takes a lot of photos at demonstrations. It's how he got started in street photography.
1: Getting me out to protests, like, that helped me kind of gain my confidence in approaching people. You know, they were there to spread the message they, they want, their message to be documented in some kind of way, so that kind of really helped shape my confidence when it came to like approaching people just on the street, you know, when it wasn't a protest.
0: Like people spontaneously dancing on a street corner in Five Points during a Juneteenth festival, where energy just radiates from their smiles, or another photo of a kid hanging out with his dog.
1: That's like right here. <laughs> oh, no way. There's like right here next to this market, well, there used to be a market right here, and I believe the landlord raised the rent on them, and it was like there for I don't know how, how many years, a long time. They eventually had to move out, and effectively this became somewhat of a food desert. This is like where a lot of the community would come out on a hot summer day and just just post up and hang out and and kick it. Like this kid was out there with his dog and his and his family, and I was walking by and you know kind of chopping it up with them, and they let me in. They let me in there and like they let me take these photos, and, and so. Yeah, it's
0: looks like he's
1: like eating a cookie. He's uh he has one of those like gummy like uh, gummy pizzas. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, a lot of these photos feature the community standing in front of or next to places that are no longer here because of gentrification or whatever other, you know, forces that That may be, but so yeah, I think it was like pretty important to show those type of places.
0: Gennaro tossed his gelato so we could walk across the street to another place that's changed dramatically through the years, the Rossonian. We stood outside the wooden door next to the light rail stop. Jazz greats walked through the door from the 1920s to the 1950s.
1: This was a place where jazz musicians, black jazz musicians, would come and stay. After playing these clubs downtown and these hotels downtown where they weren't allowed to stay uh, in a time where it was, you know, black musicians couldn't really stay in those places.
0: Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, and Nat King Cole all stayed and played at the Rossonian. It's closed now. It fell into disrepair in the 1960s and 70s, though there's been talk about revitalizing it for years. This is where Gennaro took one of the highlights of Brick and Soul.
1: Oh, I love that photo. This is like probably my favorite photo of the exhibit. It's called Lost Jazz. It's a beautiful portrait of my friend Wes Watkins, who's a local musician, really a renaissance man. I love that guy. Uh, but it's the photo of him playing the trumpet just inside the door here at the Rossonian, and the light kind of is hitting him in a perfect way. And he's wearing this like red jacket, red hat, and, and the hound's tooth underneath. And, and it's just like, it's so vibrant and I, I don't even I really don't even know how to describe it sometimes I just love looking at it and really wes is what makes it so amazing because if you could hear I wish you could hear the photo because when he was playing it was like the whole room fell silent When, uh, when I took the photo here of, of Wes, I really kind of wanted to you know, summon that that past, that legendary past that the Rossonian really cultivated. That's why I called it Lost Jazz, because the spirit of the Rossonian was missing for such a long time. When I took that photo of Wes, it really kind of just like lifted my spirits, just even taking it. I felt like the spirits of the grace of the past were in here like, you know, celebrating too.
0: For all of Gennaro's love for Denver and the people who live here, it's an adopted home. He grew up in Los Angeles. He moved here 11 years ago. I wanted to know what he thought Denver would be like before he visited for the first time in 2003.
1: That's a good question. I don't even know if i thought about what this city was like for that long. I just knew that it snowed here, and that was really it. There's so many different gems and pockets of, of just, like, beautiful culture that isn't really pushed in in popular media when you see and hear about Denver in like stuff like social media it's all like street art and uh yoga and all these you know craft breweries but it's so much more than that
0: (laughs) and do you remember if there was a person or something specific that you saw that made it feel more like home
1: I don't know what the first time was but I definitely remember being cruising up and down a federal in like 2014 and meeting Kevin, who was formerly of Out of Control Car Club, and he owned a couple of lowriders that I saw in a a parking lot at Grandpa's Burger Haven. And I remember stopping and kind of just asking him if I could take photos of his cars and if I could take some photos of him. And he said, yeah, go ahead. Not, I don't know if that was the first time, but that was definitely a time where I felt like I was home. It it like touched me in my soul. And I, I was like, yo, I need more of this.
0: And what about Denver is, like, home to you?
1: I mean, the Mexican food. The Mexican food is, like, is A1 out here. People sleep on, on the great Mexican food that's available out here. Um, but just, like, cruising culture out here is it, very similar to what California has to offer. You know, driving up and down certain neighborhoods and seeing, like, signs in Spanish. And, like, that's just, like, that's just what I'm used to. You know, that's just what I grew up with. And I had no idea that that, like, was here, you know. 17 years ago before I came here.
0: And Denver's changed a lot even since you started taking photos. I mean you were showing me photos that you've taken that are of places that don't even exist since 2017. Um, Tell me a little bit more about the places that are going to be in this exhibit that aren't here anymore.
1: Sure, so I mean right behind us there's a brick building that is no longer here that is featured in the exhibit and it has some like kids playing in front of it uh, during a Juneteenth festival. There's a portrait of uh, some members of a, of a couple car clubs chilling underneath I-70. And as we all know, I-70, the viaduct, no longer exists. And so, yeah, these are just like photos of, of, of different places that are no longer here anymore and that were staples and, and meant a lot to a lot of the people here in these communities.
0: And at the same time, you're doing this intimate picture of Denver and of the people that you've met and that you've come to know but you also didn't grow up here what is it like to have your perspective and be taking these photos and to be doing this exhibit to sort of hold up a mirror
1: you know this is very much from the perspective of an outsider i'm not from here but i call this place home i try to be as informed as i can about the history of denver especially when it comes to certain neighborhoods and so this is a celebration this this is a celebration of denver for denver i know there's a lot of folks here in Denver that kind of keep Denver close to them. Rightfully so, you know, this is their home. So I'm really just trying to pay homage to the folks that make the city so beautiful and that have really like, allowed me and trusted me to kind of capture their some of these intimate moments.
0: Are there other moments that you want to tell us about that they're gonna, people are going to see in the exhibit?
1: Yeah, so with this exhibit, like I said, I'm trying to connect all facets of life. There's moments where our people are celebrating in front of certain Denver landmarks. There's moments where people are protesting in front of these landmarks. Um, there's also moments where people are mourning the loss of a loved one in these photos. One in particular is a mural that was uh, painted for our friend uh, B-Money. Legendary DJ here in Denver was part of a group that started a legendary hip-hop show in Boulder SCU. CU. He took hip-hop from here uh, in Denver, and he was really spreading it his knowledge all over the world. I mean, he was teaching kids in Serbia about hip-hop. He was teaching kids with drug abuse issues here in Denver about DJing for free, and he passed way too soon. And one of the photos is actually about a year later, on his birthday, after he passed, um, a group of friends, about 30, 40 of us, are standing in front of that mural, And I was able to just, like, capture that moment of us celebrating his life. I didn't tell his mom about it until just recently. When I did, she, I mean, she was so excited. She can't wait to, like, bring all her teacher friends out there to History Colorado. So, yeah, so just paying homage to to the people that, like I said, have made Denver what it is.
0: Brick and Soul is part of History Colorado's project, Building Denver. The series of exhibits is tied together with the question, is this the city we had in mind? How does Gennaro answer that?
1: I mean, I (laughs) think, you know, that's funny because I think you can see that with all the construction going on and all the expansion. Like this city, when they first (laughs) built it, I don't think they were expecting this many people to be moving in every month over this extended period of time. As you can see, like I-25 will never stop being worked on. Places like Santa Fe and and, and stuff like that. Even I-70, you know, I did not think they imagined that this city would see this exponential growth. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. It's definitely a city that's a work in progress. But I think the people that come here need to show the love and, the, and respect the people that were here before that. And that's definitely what I'm trying to do with this exhibit.
0: I just want to thank you so much for sharing it, sharing your Denver.
1: Right on. I appreciate you.
0: Armando Gennaro is a Denver photographer. His exhibition, Brick and Soul, opens at the History Colorado Center on July 30th. A safe place to sleep in cars, a hotel that could become housing, and the impact of sweeps to clear out encampments. These are just some of the recent developments affecting people experiencing homelessness in Denver. Denverite's Esteban Hernandez joins us now. Hi, Esteban. Hi, Avery. The most recent point-in-time count and survey shows that more than 4,000 people experiencing homelessness in the city of Denver. Can you give us a bit of perspective on that number?
3: Yeah, so the point in time is a one-day count of people living in the streets or in shelters. It's done every January, not just in Denver, but across the nation. Uh, The latest numbers are from last year, which was before the pandemic. It's possible those numbers have gone up, given the number of people who've lost jobs and housing in the past year. Uh, There was no point in time count this year due to the pandemic pandemic. The point in time count is designed to show trends and what may or may not be working to help people experiencing homelessness.
0: We know the city of Denver stepped up sweeps of encampments recently. An advocacy group released a report Monday looking at the impact. What did that report find?
3: The group is called Denver Homeless Out Loud. Uh, it advocates for the rights and protections of people experiencing homelessness. It surveyed 100 and 150 people during the pandemic between April and August last year. It found 9 out of 10 people uh, they spoke to had been caught up in a sweep or the city uh, taking their property away. Here is uh, Therese Howard. She's an activist with Denver Homeless Out Loud. She spoke over a bullhorn in Civic Center Park Monday.
2: Most significantly, over 70% of people that we surveyed at some point moved back to a location that they had previously been swept from.
0: Reiterating here, 7 out of 10 people moved back to an area they had previously been swept from. So what did the group conclude based on the survey?
3: They say the findings show the sweeps do not connect people with housing or services. Uh, the group says sweeps can have a traumatic impact on the people being moved, and they want the city to stop doing them, or uh, they want the city to give camps seven-day notices for all sweeps and to let people know their thing where their things will be stored after a sweep. The group also recommends the city provide regular trash service to people experiencing homelessness and personal hygiene resources.
0: CBS 4 reported in June that the city logged an average of 116 calls or emails each day complaining about homeless encampments, with more than 7,000 so far this year. The city of Denver recently announced what it calls a street enforcement team to ticket people violating the city's urban camping ban. I asked Denver Mayor Michael Hancock about this. He called the citations a last resort.
4: I mean, the objective is not just to enforce a camping ban in the city of Denver, but If they come in contact with people who are camping, the the goal is to try to connect them to services. So they'll be equipped to train to do just that. We have specialty courts designed for those who are cited for this very thing. And, again, the ultimate goal is not so much jail time or incarceration or detention, but, again, to connect with services. And so we do have laws, and those laws have to be observed from all of us regardless of what our condition is. And we have to, uh, particularly when services are available, encourage people to take advantage of those services.
0: Ms. Damon, Denverite used city documents to track encampment sweeps for 18 months. What did it show?
3: Uh, My colleague Kevin Beatty mapped the numbers. Uh, So Denver does not have a central database for information related to the sweeps. Uh, So we had to request records. Uh, Denverite obtained dozens of emails and documents from the city's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Department of Public Health and Environment, they show the city conducted sweeps for 17 weeks in a row since early March, and there were more days of sweeps last month uh, last month in June than any other month we tracked. Uh, and and the city acknowledges started doing the, the two or three encampment cleanups a week again after taking a break during the height of the pandemic last year, but says that's not unusual.
0: Is there a general area where the sweeps have been happening?
3: Yeah, the records show that the sweeps are generally focused on the center of the city and along the South Platte River A year ago, the sweeps took place closer to five points where services and and clinics are are concentrated. But over time, crews began sweeping more encampments further out from uh, Denver center.
0: So right now on the other side of this, the city of Denver has two sanctioned encampments. But at the moment, there are no public plans to expand that program. Esteban, you also reported this month on Denver approving the city's first safe parking space for people living in their cars. What will that look like?
3: It'll be at the first Universalist Church in the University Hills neighborhood uh, starting this week. The, the city will allow up to eight cars in part of the church's parking lot overnight. Uh, up to 16 people can stay in those cars. The Colorado Safe Parking Initiative will run the program. Uh, to use a lot, people need to apply for a permit, so they can't just show up. Uh, additional services will be offered for people using the lot. The goal is to uh, help them get into stable housing or, or reach whatever goals they set for themselves. There are similar sites in Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, and Jefferson counties. Eight cars really doesn't seem like a lot. In the big picture, it, it, it's not. Uh, but uh, the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative estimates there are at least 1,000 people living in their cars in, in Metro Denver. And they expect that number to go up once the national eviction moratorium ends later this month.
0: Another idea is to convert a hotel into a place that people experiencing homelessness could stay. What would that entail?
3: This uh, project involves the staying hotel in northeast Denver and the city central park neighborhood. U.S. Representative Diana DeGette has requested $2 million dollars. In federal funding for the city to buy and renovate the hotel, the hotel has ninety-five rooms. The idea is to use it as a shelter for the next two years, and then convert it into supportive housing. The GET thinks it could help uh, more than one hundred and fifty people a year. A House Appropriation Subcommittee approved the funding last week, so this plan is not final, but it is moving forward.
0: And I understand that the mayor wants to buy additional hotel motels.
3: Yeah, uh, Mayor uh, Michael Hancock is is pushing for a bond measure uh, in November that would uh, help the city purchase motels where people can stay as they try to find more perna- permanent places to live.
0: Esteban, thank you so much for joining us today with this update.
3: Anytime, Avery.
0: Esteban Hernandez is a reporter for Denverite. We'll put a link to all of his reporting on this issue at CPR.org. <laughs> Colorado is spending an unprecedented amount of money to improve broadband infrastructure and access across the state. It's more than $100 million in state and federal funding. Democratic State Senator Jeff Bridges has worked on legislation to set up the program. He says Colorado is taking a new approach.
4: So you need to have the physical infrastructure. Absolutely. That's sort of the base level. But if you look around the state, one of the things that the pandemic really made clear is that there are more people who aren't online because they can't afford to be online because of income.
0: The state's Broadband Advisory Board recently released its annual report. It says a main focus moving forward is creating digital equity where everyone can connect to fully participate in society. The city of Denver's newest public art installation has been officially dedicated in honor of former mayor Federico Peña, who pioneered the airport. The 27-foot tall sculpture, Luminous Wind, is a spiky glowing orb along Peña Boulevard. It was installed last fall, but the dedication was delayed until this month because of the pandemic. I think you would feel inspired if you saw it because on the legs are quotes by former mayor Federico Peña. They're bilingual. So they connect with the fact that he was the first Hispanic mayor in the city of Denver, um, that he was a huge role within the city and then also with the whole, you know, United States of America. So he's a big deal. Um, and he's also the namesake for the boulevard, for Peña Boulevard. So it's exciting to be able to dedicate something to him. That's Alex Venteria, an airport spokeswoman, speaking with us in November. The sculpture changes colors as it responds to wind and the sunlight. The pandemic meant Colorado Matters couldn't hit the road like we used to, but we are preparing to be on the road again. In late August, our team will visit six spots. Rocky Ford, Colorado Springs, Fort Morgan, Grand Junction, The Four Corners, and Alamosa. If you know those places well, we'd love your story ideas. Head over to cpr.org roadtrip to see the map and give us your input. That's cpr.org roadtrip. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what teachers have learned during the pandemic and how that could reshape what happens in the classroom. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News.
2: CPR is committed to mentor the next generation of journalists and broadcasters, and this August will host the NextGen Radio Program. If you're a college student or recent graduate who's thinking about a career in radio or starting your own podcast, this is your opportunity to learn directly from the professionals in our newsroom. I'm Patrice Mondragon from the CPR News Production Team and a proud alum of the NextGen Program. Learn how to report and interview, edit and produce your own multimedia journalism project.
0: Find more info at nextgenradio.org. The last year was perhaps one of the hardest teachers have ever experienced, but it also forced them to reflect on how they normally do things in a classroom, what's good to keep and what could be improved. A new report from Teach Plus Colorado talked with teachers about their ideas. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine shares what the pandemic taught them. Hi there. How are you? Hello, Bruno. Jason C. in France
2: has more time to hang out with his two dogs after a school year that he can describe in two words chaotic, um, challenging. But the 27-year veteran math teacher is quick to add the year was also filled with learning. It challenged education paradigms teachers have gotten comfortable with. He says it gave teachers a kick. The worst thing, he says, is if next year means they didn't learn anything from 18 months of chaos.
4: There has to be things that we can take from that that are going to make us be
3: better.
2: And here are some of them. First, all kids need reliable internet. Second, France was reminded how much kids need each other in person. He'd pop into virtual breakout rooms and see five black screens all muted. But he discovered an interactive slideshow that let everyone see how each other was thinking about math problems. That spurred conversation. He'll use it next year, projected at the front of the classroom.
3: And so it's a way to really capture things that in the past were sort of fleeting
2: He can use the data to design the next day's lesson. Adrian Parker, who taught chemistry at DSST Conservatory Green in Denver, says it's mind-boggling that pre-COVID, he didn't record all his lessons into a virtual library.
3: It just provides access to knowledge right there at the fingertips.
2: Before, if a student was absent, sick, family, or religious reasons, they'd get the paperwork after and could go to office hours for questions. Parker thinks high school teachers should record all lessons. It could also help schools who typically have to scramble to find a sub.
3: I think that would relieve a lot of pressure from teachers to feel like I need to go to school even if I'm sick or can't go in.
2: Kids could tune into a pre-recorded lesson. In rural Colorado, elementary teacher Nicole Melby was struck by the amount of lost time with remote and hybrid learning. It made her think about the pace of learning.
0: Over the last several years, education has been a rush, 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 cram it in, do more, achieve more, higher test scores.
2: The past year pushed teachers to evaluate what's most important. You
0: have to really narrow it down to top priorities. What is absolutely essential?
2: next year of course a school can't unilaterally decide to teach fewer standards but the pandemic prompted teachers to teach more efficiently combining more standards into one activity another innovation came from phonics in person kids have to see teachers mouths to see how sounds are formed that was hard with masks on
0: our school developed a lot of outdoor classrooms and we spent a lot of time outside Parents donated logs that were cut up.
2: Those became chairs and tables. It'll become a permanent feature at our school. Another thing changed.
0: We did a lot more communicating with parents.
2: Melby School hosted virtual parent nights once a month to help parents help their child learn. More parents showed up to parent-teacher conferences online. Teachers want schools to designate frequent times to check in with parents. In the upper grades, another area to improve, testing. Math teacher Jason France caught on quickly that some students were using a phone app to scan and solve their math problems. Teachers tried to outsmart them. That didn't work.
4: We sort of felt like the Olympic doping committee.
3: The dopers were half a step ahead of the tests that are finding the performance-enhancing drugs, right?
2: France realized if a student could ace a test using an app, is that really what the test should be measuring? You'd like to see fewer questions about procedures and more about problem solving, finding the errors in someone else's answer, or applying a math skill.
3: Reanalyzing how we assess students is huge.
2: Chemistry teacher Adrian Parker says assessments are valuable, but when it comes to developing a child into an adult, other soft skills are more important teachers are mulling if there are ways to assess skills the pandemic forced upon kids working independently explaining and showing work in different ways managing time parker saw how much pressure the system puts on kids to get an a that pushes kids to cheat or memorize
1: it stunts them so quickly
3: because their focus isn't understanding the material the focus is getting the grade
2: Teachers say they hope they'll be able to take the golden nuggets of insight the pandemic gave them and push for change. They know it'll be hard in a performance-driven system that can make it hard for teachers to take risks. Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
0: Medicine has come a long way from the early days of miasma and bleedings. The book, The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine, details the journey of discovery from leeches to antibiotics to open-heart surgery. This history also helps explain the increasing speed of medical advancements. It took less than a year to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Author Dr. David Schneider is an orthopedic surgeon based in Boulder. We spoke in January. Dr. Schneider, welcome. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Your book, it starts with a story that inspired you to write this history. Tell us that story.
4: Well, I'd been treating this family for some time, and uh, I got a call from Central America. And the call was that uh, the patient, the, the wife of the patient I had treated, was very seriously injured, had a gruesome injury, and she was trapped in this hospital and needed to make her way back to the United States. So, uh, and of course, they changed the identities and even the sex of the patient, but uh, long story short, she made her way back to the States via an air ambulance. And once they picked her up in a a regular ambulance back to our hospital, I was rehearsing in my mind how I would talk to the family and tell them she's really at grave risk of losing her leg. We're going to try and do everything we can. There might be some, some surprises along the way. So I rehearsed this talk in my mind. And once I got into the preoperative holding area, before I could even get it out, she looked at me and she said, I want a perfect ankle and I don't want to see any scars. I was kind of shocked because I was trying to prepare them that, you know, you really could lose your leg. And through a long series of events and multiple operations, she actually ended up having really ideal, almost perfect function of the ankle and her scars were invisible. And as the months went by and I kept trying to review and just just to recount the fact that it really was a miraculous type of recovery, man, it, it, I felt like I couldn't break through. And they just said, well, of course, I mean, isn't the way it always works? And I said, well, man, it, you know, it, just 75 years ago, before the invention of antibiotics, you would have almost certainly lost your leg. And no matter what I tried to convey, They just wouldn't kind of grasp the fact that we're living through this modern miracle. And in frustration, I walked out of the clinic room one day and I told one of my assistants, I feel like I should write a book and explain to people how dramatically far we've come over the last 75 years. And she looked at me and she said, you should write a book. And I said, I really should write a book. And and she said, no, Dave. Dr. Schneider, you really should write a book. And I thought, <laughs> I will. And uh, hence the, the, the journey, the adventure started.
0: So this is sort of a history just to inspire gratefulness for what we do have. Your his- <laughs> well, just yeah,
4: to, become, to become aware. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So your history, it begins with Hippocrates and Galen. They're often called the fathers of medicine. But you write that these two contributed nothing useful to the actual healing of people. Why yeah. then are they still considered the fathers of medicine?
4: Well, I guess they—they they both Hippocrates and Galen, Greek and Roman respectively, did inspire an inclination to think more deeply about how the body works. And of course, they were limited by all the diagnostic tools. Of course, they were almost 2000 years away from a, a good working microscope, but at least they tried. And they had an emphasis on doing the right thing and being honest with your patients and, and the highest duty to care for your patients. But really, it is, uh, as I write in the book, it's a dubious paternity because they were wrong in so many ways.
0: (laughs) So it's not that they had the science right so much, but they did inspire a lot of the ways that we view medicine or that doctors can practice it. That's right. There are a number of scientists who weren't physicians who you argue played a role in the history of medicine. People like Gutenberg, Newton, Francis Bacon. Tell us about their contributions.
4: Well, it really starts with Francis Bacon. 400 years ago, almost exactly, in 1620, Francis Bacon was really the guy, more than anyone else, that is the father of empirical science. And Bacon had this incredible inclination. He lived in and around London. He really realized, you know what, if if we get a bunch of really smart thinkers together in a room and do an important process, empirical science, that is to say to form a hypothesis do some investigative work, come up with some data, analyze it, and form a new hypothesis. And if we keep doing this, particularly sharing the information in what he called Solomon's House, if we come together and do that, we'll actually figure out truly how the world works. And of course, it was, it was Francis Bacon who then inspired the formation just less than 50 years later of the Royal Society, the world's really first genius society. And these men, of course, it was men as scientists uh, 400 years ago, 350 years ago, who then said, we're going to share our information and we're going to have the world's first peer-reviewed journal, which is still in function today, the Philosophical Transactions. This peer-reviewed sharing of information, the collection of scientific data, is what just forced the world to leapfrog ahead. And it was then the early astronomers, guys like Galileo, by being able to peer and think about the way the heavens worked, really started the ball forward and and really trying to ascertain, does our mathematical world, is it predictable? And of course, it is.
0: And what Bacon was pioneering, we know now is the scientific method, um, which of course has been important for all of our science. Uh, there were several yeah. moments that propelled medicine forward, but a major one was the discovery of pathology by Giovanni Battista Morgagni. Why was yeah. this important?
4: Morgagni doesn't get the credit he deserves. He had this incredible research project throughout the 1700s to realize you know, doctors, there was never a good, no matter how smart a doctor was in the 1700s, they weren't doing anyone any good. You were really better off letting nature take its own course. So Morgagni began this process in his 20s as a young doctor in Northern Italy. And he realized, I'm gonna take everyone's hospital course or their health course, and we're gonna analyze how they do. And if they die, I will do an autopsy. I'll cut them open and try and investigate how they died, and so he's the guy that really put together, let's see, lower abdominal pain for a few days before you die. He found the swollen appendix, and someone that had this crushing chest pain and then collapsed. It was Morgane who opened up a man's heart, looked at the coronary vessels, and saw that it was clogged, and realized, I think these coronary blood vessels are what caused this man to die, and he was the first person to realize what a heart attack was. And it goes on and on. And Morganier amazingly collected all this data over 60 years. He waited until he was in his 80s to publish his book. It's called, this, it, in English, we would say, the seats and causes of disease. He's the one that, that really shone the light upon mankind, humankind, that symptoms are nothing more than the groanings of suffering organs. And in Connecting the dots and realizing if you have abdominal pain, it's not that the planets are off or that there's evil spirits in the room. It's that something is going on right then and there. And that's why he is the father of pathology, even focusing our minds even more clearly on heart, lung, kidneys, muscles, ligaments, brain, that this is where the pathology lies. This is why we get sick. This is why we die.
0: And it seems so commonplace and obvious to us now, but the discovery of germs in the 1800s was also a game changer. How did this change the way that doctors thought about diseases?
4: It really is a miraculous set of findings by a very small group of thinkers, uh, mostly German and later some of the Brits, to realize something is really going on. And and the the first person, I I left out Louis Pasteur, the, the Frenchman, Pasteur was the one who was called to a winemaker uh, in northeastern France because his, his wine kept spoiling. And so he hired Pasteur, who was not a physician. He was a chemist. Pasteur looked at the spoilage and realized, you know what? I, I, it's not that there are toxins in the wine that are making it go bad. Something, and this is a really important insight on his part something is amplifying there's something logarithmic going on that can't be explained just by a poison something is actually alive of course it was this yeast that was causing the spoilage um he realized that this living organism was so small we couldn't see it the microscope was just getting good enough there in the 1850s 1860s because of a man named joseph jackson lister who's the father of joseph lister The microscope enabled them to see the bacteria and the yeast. And this incredible aha moment came about where everyone went from not believing in germs in the early 1820s, 1830s, and by the 1880s, every smart person in the world believed in germs, bacteria. Of course, you couldn't see viruses. Scientists couldn't see viruses for almost another 100 years. They're so incredibly small. But they realized they had to be there. And once you believe in germs, now you can actually start doing things ridiculously simple, like washing your hands, <laughs> bathing, cleansing the skin before surgery.
0: I mean, it's hard to believe, though, because Joseph Lister, you mentioned, he was one of the first people to champion hand washing, and he faced ridicule. So, how did we come from that discovery uh, to germs to hand washing to antibiotics?
4: Well, he- here on NPR, listeners will have. Uh, heard a couple different times the amazing story of Semmelweis. Semmelweis was the Hungarian who practiced in Vienna, Austria. He tried connecting the dots that in the childbirth unit there at the University of Vienna, that women did better if they were cared for by people who actually washed their hands. He ended up losing his life. They thought he was crazy, and he may have had syphilis, but Semmelweis was the first person to really emphatically insist that germs were real. But the problem with Semmelweis, because he was kind of going mad and because he was perhaps too emotional and not scientific enough to explain to his fellow thinkers, physicians and scientists, that he was right. Joseph Lister accomplished that because he was able through a careful program of scientific research, able to prove that the germ theory was right and that his patients did better When he cleansed their skin, he cleansed their wounds, he washed his hands. And as uh, Charles Darwin's son said, in science, the credit usually doesn't go to the person who thinks of it first. The credit goes to the person who convinces the world of his idea.
0: Hmm. Something interesting you note in this book, and you point to it over and over again, is that advancements in surgery came from tinkerers, oddballs, lonely geniuses, inspiring mentors, and stubborn misfits. Why is that?
4: Well, nothing in this world is accomplished without enthusiasm, Avery. And everyone who's ever made a difference, every man or woman that pushed the ball forward tended to be a, a, an absolutely obsessive personality. And they tended to think through their hands. Almost everyone who's done something were, were the kind of tinker who had to make a tool, who wanted to think it out in their minds, with their hands. And uh, it's just this commonality, as well as just almost being this nerd uh, isolated by themselves. And it's part of the reason that makes it difficult to convince your fellow person that you're really onto something if you're away in your dark, damp research area trying to make it all happen.
0: And then you have to come out of the dark, damp research area and convince people (laughs) that what you found was right throughout your right. throughout your book you argue the progress of medicine looks less like a straight line and more like parabolic growth. There seems to be less time in between discoveries as we go forward. How do you account for that acceleration?
4: Well the first part of it of course is sharing and of course that starts with Gutenberg and the ability to share with your fellow person and and like the Royal Society like we spoke about the the rapidity with which the progress is made now, is stunning. And it's almost like this doubling rule that we see with microchips. The faster the advancements come, the faster the next uh, breakthrough occurs. And, And I think we're just gonna continue to see this. And of course, the most recent vaccination progress is just an incredible example of how the speed of science just continues to accelerate.
0: So years of innovation. It has built to what you pointed to, this very recent scientific discovery, the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. But that hadn't happened yet when you wrote the book, of course. Right. Do you think that the history of medicine helps to explain why we're able to develop a vaccine so quickly?
4: I think it does. Uh, Of course, the history of medicine, the advancement of surgery, is, is really all about science. It's this discovery. You have to understand first how things are working then you have to think about how things go wrong. And then you have to really try and innovate a clever way of getting around it. And it always comes down to the simple mathematical formula in my mind that innovation is this revolution, I should say. Revolutions happen through the combination of some crisis or a catastrophe combined with some scientific invention. So catastrophe, plus an innovation equals a revolution. And of course, that's what's happened. Vaccines have been around for, you know, since the time of Jenner, but it really wasn't until the last 15 years that Carrico and Wiseman had this incredible idea that this workaround to try and make an mRNA vaccine work better. And and as is typical, Katlyn Carrico at Penn, together with her colleague Wiseman, had this idea that was very much unheralded at first. She was laughed out of the university. Her pen advisor told her she really wasn't cut out for academia, but her idea of course is what's changing the world, which is why there can be no doubt that the two of them will win the Nobel prize for chemistry this upcoming year. But it's this ability to think out of the box, to be different, to break away from the crowd. That's where innovation happens.
0: Back in March, you actually predicted that the vaccine would be developed within a year, didn't you?
4: <laughs> yeah, it was, we, I was on WABC in New York, and I followed immediately after the former FDA commissioner. And he was warning listeners in New York, it's going to be a couple years, it'll probably be three years. It's just not going to happen. And I was next, and I said, I don't know anything. And he's the FDA commissioner, for goodness sakes. I'm, he's a virologist and a world expert in vaccines. But I do understand the way revolutions work. I think he's wrong. The world is amazing.
0: And we are all glad that it is here sooner than two years. Yeah. Um, you actually noted this earlier, that leaps in medicine, they often occur during war times or times of strife. And I feel like yeah. that's actually not unlike many forms of technology. But tell us a little bit more about why you think that is.
4: Part of it is uh, our minds are not really attuned to look at big breakthroughs or to have a huge insight unless we have the vast number of, just just the numbers to be able to form a conclusion. War brings that about oftentimes. Um, all, almost all the great advances in surgery happen because of wartime findings and discoveries, because you have huge numbers of people who are injured and you can think through, well, actually, we can't fix fractures in the field when it's dirty because everyone's dying. What if we just cleanse their wounds, temporize them, and then fix them later? And of course, the advent of antibiotics, which was only 80 years ago, Avery. 80 years ago was the first clinical dose of penicillin. And uh, it's just a matter of scale that allows us to actually envision what is working and what's not.
0: Well, you end your book with a look forward to our future, and you call it Homo Electris. In about the minute we have left, what is Homo Electris?
4: Well, it's the the term I coined to think about man and machine kind of becoming one. And it's a little frightening for some thinkers, but uh, there can be no doubt. You know, anyone listening right now, you almost can't name a person that doesn't have some type of implant in their body. And if you have the implant in your body that's electrical, like a pacemaker or deep brain stimulation, we're getting to the point where I think all of us are going to end up having something in our body and it's probably going to be electrical more and more. And companies like Neuralace and other kinds of companies, they're going to help us think and process better. Seems to me there is no doubt that probably 50, if not 100 years from now, Just about every person in the world is going to have some type of device, probably even in our brain. Forget about an iPhone in your hand. It's going to be like having an iPhone in your brain.
0: (laughs) And that starts to pose a sort of ship of Theseus problem, but with our own brains. But I suppose (laughs) that's a question for the moral philosophers. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Schneider. Thank you, Avery. Dr. David Schneider is an orthopedic surgeon based in Boulder. He's the author of The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine from the Renaissance to the Implant Revolution. We spoke in January. Harvest season for one of western Colorado's most famous crops kicked off last week. CPR's Stina Sieg was there. That's the sound of sweet corn brand name Olathe Sweet, being picked by hand outside of Olathe, a tiny community best known for this crop. Gary Espinoza, driving a pickup truck with a bed full of sweet corn, owns Big E Market in Eckert. He says some of his customers have been asking about the corn for months.
3: They know when that truck's back in there and the mud's dripping off the truck, they know that it's it's sweet corn harvest time. So they know that it's, the summer is officially here when this sweet corn truck pulls into the Big E in Eckert. So <laughs> Olathe sweet
0: corn can be found at markets all across the state throughout the summer. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Before we say goodbye, a correction to a story we shared last week. The nonprofit U.S. Center for Safe Sports says 93% of respondents to a survey who experienced sexual harassment or unwanted contact during their time in sports did not report it. Because of an error in how the center reported its findings, last week's story misstated that information. You can read the complete, updated story at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielick. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis.
2: Michelle Fulcher.
4: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez.
4: Pedro Lumbrano.
0: Patrice Mondragon.
2: Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner.
0: And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.